Welcome everyone to another Legends of Surgery podcast. I'm David Sigmund, your host for this episode, and I hope everyone is staying safe during our current pandemic, which is the inspiration of this episode, especially for our frontline listeners, which we here at Legends of Surgery know are not just physicians, nurses, and pharmacists, but also hospital staff, including those who bring patients food, clean their rooms, and transport them to their needed procedures. We truly thank you all for your heroic work in this trying time. Today's episode is about a surgeon who was famous for staying in Avignon, France, when the Black Death struck in 1368 and all their physicians fled. The surgeon went by the name of Guy de Chaliac. While Chaliac is often referenced in the setting of the heroic work he performed during the years of the Black Death, this greatly undersells him, for he was truly one of the greatest surgeons of his day who wrote one of the greatest textbooks of his era on medicine and surgery, titled Sugaria Magna, or in its English title, Great Writings on Surgery, and was the personal physician to three separate popes. Let's dive in and hear the story of this legend of surgery. Chaliac was born sometime between 1290 and 1300 in the town of Chalhac in southern France. He was born to a family of poor peasants, and little is known about his early life other than he was intelligent enough to earn a scholarship from the Catholic Church to study medicine. He actually completed his holy orders, that is the training to become a priest, before beginning his medical education, and thus took an oath to be celibate and never married. He began his medical studies in Toulouse before going to continue his study of medicine at Montpellier. Montpellier is a port city on France's southern coast, and as such, was visited by members from all of the great countries and societies of the day, which according to one contemporary historian included Christians, Saracens, Arabs, Jews, Lombards, Romans, Egyptians, Greek, Genovese, Spaniards, and even Englishmen. This mixing of cultures was a great benefit to the study of medicine there, as textbooks and physicians could exchange ideas and techniques from all corners of the earth. As a sign of Montpellier's modernity in the field of medicine, the Lord at the time, William VII, issued an edict in 1180, in the midst of the Dark Ages, that all whoever they be, from whatever country they come, may, without being troubled, teach medicine. Very enlightened for the Dark Ages. During this time, Chaliac also accepted a fellowship at the University of Bologna in Italy to study anatomy. As a quick digression, it is important to recall that dissection of human cadavers was forbidden by the Catholic Church until the 13th or 14th century, at which time some European countries legalized the dissection of executed criminals in order to educate physicians. This meant that until the time, much of the body of anatomical knowledge was taken from the teachings of Galen, the legendary Greek physician, who had derived much of his understanding from dissecting animals rather than humans. While Galen's work was highly impressive, it still left much to be desired for a physician and surgeon hoping to acquire a full understanding of human anatomy. Also worth noting is the fact that since Islamic surgeons did not operate under the edicts of the Catholic Church, they therefore were able to perform dissections, although it was unclear to what extent they did. Ibn al-Nafs, a famous Syrian surgeon, polymath, philosopher, and all-around genius, stated, Precepts of Islamic law have discouraged us from the practice of dissection, along with whatever compassion is in our temperament, although he himself is known to have performed at least a few human dissections himself. Al-Zarawi, discussed in episode 45, wrote the textbook Al-Tasrif, which was one of the standard medical anatomical textbooks for Europe from the 12th to 17th century, meaning that Shaliak could have very well benefited from learning from Islamic textbooks during his time at the crossroads city of Montpellier. But getting back to our protagonist, the first recorded public dissection in Europe was performed by Mondino de Luzi 
at the University of Bologna in 1315, meaning that Chaliac was on the cutting edge of the European study of anatomy. He was greatly appreciative of this experience, noting later in his life that a surgeon who does not know his anatomy is like a blind man carving a log. Chaliac followed his study of anatomy in Bologna by taking a fellowship in Paris, which was the center of European surgery at the time, where he studied under some of the leading surgeons of his day. Returning to Montpellier to complete his studies, he was awarded his master's in medicine in 1325, which was the highest degree possible for a physician at the time. This made him not a mere barber surgeon, but rather a full-fledged physician who was also well-versed in the arts of surgery. The relationship between surgeons and barbers was covered by Dr. Rouse in bonus episode 3, which was released following regular episode 51. Chaliac was also a teacher to John of Gaddison, the first official English royal physician during his time at Montpellier. Chaliac initially practiced in Lyon, where his skill in both medicine and surgery quickly gained him an excellent reputation. He was then invited to become Pope Clement VI's personal physician in 1342. Of note for the story, the papal court was not based in Rome at this time, but was actually in Avignon, France, from 1309 to 1377, allowing Chaliac to remain in his home country. It was in 1342 when the Black Death reached Avignon and Chaliac stayed to treat patients while the city's other physicians fled. So let's discuss what he was up against. The Black Death, also referred to as the Plague or the Pestilence, remains the most deadly pandemic in recorded human history, killing an estimated 75 to 200 million people across Asia, Europe, and Africa. Those numbers are even more stark when you consider that the world's population was much smaller then, and to help put it in perspective, it is estimated to have killed 30 to 60% of Europe's population at the time. The plague is thought to have originated in Asia and then spread along the Silk Road until it reached Crimea around 1347. Once reaching this foothold in Europe, Italian merchant ships carried the fleas containing the causative organism, Yersinia pestis, far and wide. The plague arrived in Sicily in October of 1347, reached mainland Italy by January of 1348, and was as far abroad as Portugal and England by June 1348 reaching virtually every corner of Europe by 1350. Africa and the Arabian Peninsula were also similarly affected, with the disease reaching Alexandria in Egypt in 1347 and Cairo by 1348. Also in 1348, Tunisia and Morocco had outbreaks, and by 1351, the disease was present in the cities of Mecca, Mosul, and Baghdad, as well as spreading throughout the country of Yemen. An Italian historian from the time wrote that, Father abandoned child, wife, husband, one brother, another. For this illness seemed to strike through breath and sight, and so they died. And none could be found to bury the dead for money or friendship. Members of a household brought their dead to a ditch as best they could, without priest, without divine offices. Great pits were dug and piled deep with the multitude of dead, and they died by the hundreds, both day and night. And as soon as those ditches were filled, more were dug. And I... Agnolo de Tura buried my five children with my own hands. And there were also those who were so sparsely covered with earth that the dogs dragged them forth and devoured many bodies throughout the city. There was no one who wept for any death, for all awaited death, and so many died that all believed it was the end of the world. In face of such a horrific disease, society broke down, priests and physicians fled, and widespread social upheaval ensued. Attacks against those who did not belong to majority groups, including Jews, foreigners, and Romani, broke out as they were blamed for the disease. 
However, Chaliac did not flee and rather insisted on staying within the city of Avignon to battle the disease. He worked closely with his patients and documented their symptoms thoroughly in an attempt to gain an understanding of the Black Death to better combat it. His studies allowed him to differentiate between two forms of the disease, bubonic and pneumonic plague. Both forms are caused by the aforementioned Yersinia pestis, but in bubonic plague, the organism is spread through the bite of a flea where the bacterium then enters the lymphatic system before spreading to the lymph nodes and causing them to become swollen and painful and eventually necrose. Those swollen necrosing lymph nodes are referred to as buboes, hence the name. The swelling and necrosis within the lymph system can even cause death of the tips of the fingers, toes, and nose. Our Dr. Chaliac believed himself to have contracted the disease during his work in Avignon when he developed a large and painful axillary bubo, although it appears his condition did not progress any further than that. Mortality for bubonic plague prior to the advent of antibiotics ranged from 30 to 90%, depending on the underlying health issues of the patient involved. The mnemonic form of the plague occurs when Yersinia pestis is directly inoculated into the lungs by inhalation, or if the patient develops septicemia from bubonic plague and the disease spreads to the lungs. Once a person develops pneumonic plague, they can now aerosolize the bacterium and spread it in an airborne fashion. Many people at once developing pneumonic plague was likely a significant contributor to the massive mortality seen during the Black Death. Pneumonic plague is essentially uniformly fatal if left untreated. Given that germ theory was not widely accepted until nearly 500 years after the plague, Chaliac's description of the disparate disease processes to the papal court demonstrates an impressive attention to detail in the face of such a horrific disease process, where he stated, The great death toll began in our case in the month of January 1348 and lasted for the space of seven months. It was of two kinds. The first lasted two months with continuous fever and spitting of blood and death occurred within three days. The second lasted for the whole remainder of the time, also with continuous fever and with ulcers and boils in the extremities, principally under the armpits and in the groin, and death took place within five days. And it was of so great a contagion, especially when there was spitting of blood, that not only those living in the same house, but merely through looking, one person caught it from the other. End quote. Chaliac recommended the Pope avoid visitors and keep numerous large fires burning in the papal apartments, even during hot months, keep the air purified. He also recommended bleeding and a healthy diet to those who were infected and attempted to remain blame from groups such as Jews and foreigners who were accused by many of poisoning wells by noting that the infection did not appear to be spreading in a pattern consistent with that methodology. A few other quick interesting asides about the plague. While many may not know the word quarantine comes from the Italian word quarantino, meaning 40 days, and refers to how patients or ships would be isolated for 40 days in order to ensure no one showed signs of the plague before being allowed to enter a city, the original isolation period was actually a tradtino, or 30-day period, initially enacted in a Venetian-controlled city called Ragusa, now known as the city of Dubrovnik in Croatia. As a concept spread, it became widely adopted and expanded to the 40-day mark, which led to our modern word, quarantine. Another plague myth is about the nursery rhyme, Ring-a-ring-a-rosy, which I had always been led to believe was about the plague. For those not familiar with the rhyme, it goes, Ring a round of rosies, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. In 1951, noted married English folklorist duo, Peter and Iona Opie, stated, 
The invariably sneezing and falling down in modern English versions have given would-be origin finders the opportunity to say that the rhyme dates back to the Great Plague. A rosy rash, they allege, was a symptom of the plague, and posies of herbs were carried as protection and to ward off the smell of disease. Sneezing or coughing was a final fatal symptom, and all fall down was exactly what happened. End quote. However, this does not hold up to scrutiny, as the earliest version of the rhyme seems to have arisen in the 1840s, the plague explanation didn't arise until after World War II, and the symptoms described hardly match plague symptoms at all. So sorry to bust everyone's bubble, but that children's rhyme actually isn't about the most horrific stretch of death to ever plague humanity. Back to our story. While there were several recurrent outbreaks of the plague, none reached the heights of the initial infectious wave, and Shaliak never had to face it again. Instead, while remaining the personal physician to two additional popes, Innocent VI and Urban V, he worked on and completed his exceptional textbook, Shurgia Magna. He divided his book into seven separate segments covering anatomy, aposthema, that is swellings, one might imagine his experience of the plague inspired this section, wounds, ulcers, fractures, special diseases, and antidotes. Every segment except the one on antidotes is itself subdivided into two parts, the first being on the subject overall, and the second on how to apply the concept to specific anatomical regions. He discussed a method for primitive inhalation, anesthesia writing. Some prescribe medicaments, which send the patient to sleep, so that an incision may not be felt, such as opium, the juice of a moral, hycosanus, mandrake, ivy, hemlock, or lettuce. A new sponge is soaked by them in these juices and left to dry in the sun. And when they have need of it, they put this sponge in warm water and then hold it under the nostrils of the patient until he goes to sleep. Then they perform the operation. His knowledge of how to provide a degree of anesthetization of his patients allowed Shaliak to perform a broad array of surgical procedures. He advised the use of suture when repairing wounds, but also noted that hemostasis should first be achieved. Ahead of many surgeons of his day, he advocated for antiseptic techniques, including the cleaning of wounds with strong wine and the washing of a surgeon's hands with the same. He advised applying tinctures made from poppies to be applied to wounds in order to decrease pain. He also wrote techniques for trepanation, that is boring a hole, of the skull to relieve pressure, and how to perform a thoracentesis, that is the draining of fluid from the chest cavity, using instruments available in his day. He recommended the exploration of penetrating wounds to the abdomen, and also how one might suture perforated bowel shut using a needle he himself designed. He advised treating lower limbs with traction, which was very advanced for his day. While many of these concepts may seem obvious and simple in our era, it is important to remember the treatments of wound in his time was generally with cautery via hot irons or oil. To advocate cleanliness and suturing made him truly hundreds of years ahead of his time. Shuliak also wrote separate papers on the treatment of hernias and cataracts outside of his Sergia Magna. While our interest in Shuliak's methods come from uh, historical curiosity, one segment of his writings are still very pertinent today, and those are his words on professionalism and codes of conduct. Sholiak wrote of surgeons, Let the surgeon be bold in all sure things and fearful in dangerous things. Let him avoid all faulty treatments and practices. He ought to be gracious to the sick, considerate to his associates, cautious in his prognostications. Let him be modest, dignified, gentle, pitiful, and merciful. Not covetous, nor an extortionist of money. And he also wrote, Let a surgeon's reward be according to his work to the means to the patient, to the quality of the issue, and to his own dignity.
On how a surgeon should prepare himself to excel in the surgical arts, he wrote, First, he should be learned. Second, he should be expert. Third, he must be ingenious. Fourth, he should be able to adapt himself. It is required for the first that the surgeon should know not only the principles of surgery, but also those of medicine, in theory and practice. For the second, that he should have seen others operate. For the third, that he should be ingenious, of good judgment and memory to recognize conditions. And for the fourth, that he be adaptable and able to accommodate himself to the circumstances. The focus, not just on technique, but also on these key non-technical skills, demonstrate that Chaliac thought of surgeons not as mere technicians, which was the typical viewpoint of his day, but rather as true physicians that should therefore prepare themselves to deal with all aspects of a patient's care rather than just know how to use a scalpel, again demonstrating a level of thinking well ahead of his peers in the field of surgery of his day. Chaliac's writing was most notable for the width and breadth of his predecessors he cited, in addition to his own experience. He cited the Greek Hippocrates around 120 times and Galen almost 900 times. He cited a series of Arab physicians, including Avicenna, 661 times, Abukasis, 173 times, and Rasis and Hali Abbas, each around 150 times. He also cited his contemporary teachers from his time at Montpellier, Bologna, and Paris. He made almost 3,300 references to other works in his masterpiece in total. With his opus completed in 1363, Chaliac died in 1368 in Avignon as a legend of surgery. That wraps up this episode of Legend of Surgery. I would like to give a special thanks to Dr. David Waters of Geelong Hospital for his excellent paper on Guide de Chaliac, which was the source of information for much of this podcast. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow us on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for a future episode. Thanks for listening and stay safe out there during this pandemic.